It's podcasting time! This is Just Another Jerk, Dispatches from Japan. As always, I am Jonathan Isaacson. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Uh, Probably Spotify, maybe Apple Podcasts were there. Uh, You can find it in a lot of other places too, but wherever it is, subscribe to the podcast, get your updates automatically. And while you're there, give the podcast a rating. Uh, If you got a few minutes, write a review. And definitely you should share the podcast. Got a good story for you today. So today I have a short-ish story. I, I can never make these as short as I intend to, but it's a good story. So it's a good story about a pretty amazing woman. It's a woman you've probably never heard of unless you are a huge Olympic junkie know everything about the Olympics. Probably never heard of this woman. I had never heard of her until very recently. Unfortunately, it is a story with a tragic ending, but it has a happy coda at the end. Now, I want to tell you the story of Hitomi Kinue, the first Japanese woman to medal in the Olympics. So Kinoe, that is her family. Uh, sorry, that's her given name. I, I keep getting confused because Hitomi is a very common given name as well. But Hitomi is her family name. Kinoe is her given name. So Kinoe was born in the Mitsu district of Okayama Prefecture down in western Japan on New Year's Day of all days. New Year's Day 1907. Her father was a wealthy farmer. Uh, he grew rice and igusa. Igusa is a type of plant. It's, a, it's in the rush plant family. And it's the plant that is used for making tatami mats. So if you've ever had a, been in a Japanese room, been in a Japanese room with the, with the mats, the tatami mats are made with igusa. And uh, Kinoe's father, one of his crops was igusa, the plant for those mats. And it seems, you know, reading about her life, that she grew up very much you know, monetarily privileged, but also in a very loving, supportive household. And her so her family was her parents, uh, her grandmother lived with them, and she had one older sister. And by all accounts, she was something of a tomboy. She preferred to play with her male classmates in primary school. She liked running, she liked playing sports. And this is not to say she was a bad student. I mean, far from it. She was also really, really bright. Uh, like top of the class kind of bright. Um, she was apparently also very good at writing tanka, which is a form of poetry. Uh, I'm sure most people are familiar with haiku. Um, and tanka is a similar form to haiku, but it's a little bit more, it's a little bit longer, not a lot longer. But it's another very common uh, form of poetry in Japan. And Tomomi Kinoe was very good at writing tanka. Um, like to the point of submitting stuff for, you know, news, like newspapers and things like that. Uh, so yeah, she was, she was a very smart young person, a young kid too. And after graduating from primary school, her parents decided that it was best that she continue on to secondary school, which was something of a rarity for girls in Japan in the 1920s. Uh, like I say, she had a very supportive family. Um, so she went to a girls' school that was about six kilometers, what, like three and a half, four miles, whatever, from her house. And, of course, she walked. I mean, this is 
Japan, the 1920s. How is she going to get to school? She's going to walk to school. Of course she's going to walk to school. And her school that she went to valued both the traditional elements of girls' educations, you know, learning to write poetry, I'm sure home ec kind of stuff, so probably learning cooking, learning, you know, how to do uh, sewing and stuff like that. I'm sure that was part of the curriculum. But it was also very, and this is important for our story, they valued physical education for girls as well. In particular, the girls at her school played volleyball and tennis. And Kinoe, not surprisingly, she was a tomboy. She liked sports. She excelled at sports in secondary school, um, especially tennis. Uh, and at some point, she and her partner, her tennis, they were playing doubles because it's pretty. That's pretty standard in Japan. There's not a lot of the, for the young tennis players. They mostly play doubles. And so at some point, she and her partner lost a match, a tennis match, and this made Kinoe very upset. So she went out and bought a new high-quality racket. Well, I'm sure her father probably bought her the racket. And, you know, it's stuff like this. I mean, the fact that she was sent to secondary school, her parents wanted her to go to secondary school, her father bought her a new tennis racket, stuff like this that shows her family is very supportive. I mean, they've got the money. There's not. There's no financial uh, problems for the fam- family, so sure. Only the best for their daughters. And once Kinoe got her new racket, she would practice every day until 6 p.m. Just out there hitting the balls with her tennis racket, practicing, practicing, practicing. Initially, her parents really didn't like her being outside so much because she was getting really dark suntan. And in Japan, as in a lot of places, you know, dark skin was seen as being a sign of being a laborer, right? Okay, I should say, it's a sign of of that for for people in places that have lighter skin, of course. And having very pale skin in Japan has long been a sign of uh, of being from the privileged class, so that was kind of a good thing. Um, But, so her parents, they didn't really like getting this deep suntan, but she didn't care, right? She's a tomboy, she wants to do sports, She got better at tennis, and then the next year, uh, she was in the big prefectural tournament. Her father came and cheered her on, right? Yes, they didn't like she was getting a dark suntan, but they were supportive of her her endeavors. And that year, uh, Tomomi Kinue and her partner won the prefectural tennis tournament. And it was also during secondary school that she was introduced to athletics, you know, track and field, athletics as, as they call them in, in the Olympics. And she set a Japanese record for the running long jump. Uh, and I say running because this is the era when you have standing long jump uh, is also a thing. And she was good at both kinds of long jump, running and standing long jumps. And... After she graduated from secondary school, she went on to the newly opened Nikaido School of Physical Education, which was a well, women's, uh, women's post-secondary school that stressed physical education, and it would go on to become the Japanese Women's College of Physical Education. Still is a school today. So if you want to be you know, learn about uh, sports science, things like that, that's the kind of school you'd go 
And the founder of the school, Nikaido Tokyo, is another woman who actually I think she may be worth her own short little episode at some point um, because she really she was an innovator for women's education in Japan and was really strongly pushing the need for women to also have physical education classes. So Hitomi Kinoe entered the Nikaido School of Physical Education in 1924, and this is when she really started traveling around Japan to enter all these national track and field, these athletics competitions in all sorts of disciplines, and winning pretty much all of them, and pretty much always in record-setting ways. More than a few of her records would be world record-type things. And so it was while she was a student at Nikaido that she set the world record for women's triple jump with a jump of 10 meters, 33 centimeters, and also a world record for javelin, uh, 26 meters, 37. And she would go on to better her triple jump record two more times while she was still a student. I believe uh, 11 meters, 35, and then 11 meters, 62 And now, after she graduated from Nikaido, she would get a job at the Osaka Mainichi newspaper in the sports department, of course, and she continued to attend track meets and dominate pretty much anything and everything she tried. Long jump? National record. Shot put? National record. 100-meter hurdles? National record. 4 by 100 relay? Yep. National record. Obviously, that was with three other people, but still. So pretty much anything she tried, she was getting national records. She was setting the Japanese records. And by in the fall of 1926, Hitomi Kinoe attended the second Women's World Games in Sweden. Now, the Women's World Games, they were kind of the, the a big athletics competition for women. This is kind of the period where women are starting to do sports like in public, um, not just as kind of a let's keep them busy at home kind of thing. So this is a thing. The, the, the Women's World Games, the second one was in 1926, and it was being held in Sweden. The only athlete attending from Japan, uh, Hitomi traveled alone on the Trans-Siberian Railroad to Moscow, where she met a Japanese reporter from her newspaper who was working in the company's Moscow bureau, and he accompanied her to Sweden. And at the games, she competed in six events. She came home with four medals and an honorary prize. So her events and the medals in the women's games, 250 meter dash, sixth place, not bad. Fifth in the 60 meter dash, 100 meter, uh, 100 yards, sorry, things are confusing here. They have still have meters and yards in these events. But anyway, 100 yard dash, bronze medal. Discus, silver medal. Standing long jump, gold medal. Running long jump, gold medal. In a world record setting fashion. So, right. So she comes home with four medals, one world record, uh, and then a fifth and a sixth place, which, you know, for most people would be really good if you're the fifth or sixth fastest woman in the world, no, she said, nah, that, that, that's okay. I'm going to go get four medals. Um, and all of this meant she earned the most individual points 
I, I don't exactly know. I guess they had, you know, each event you get a certain number of points. And of all the women who were competing in the Women's World Games, Tomomi Kinoe earned the most points. And that's why she got an honorary award from the International Women's Sports Federation. And it was at this time, after seeing a high-level international competition for the first time, this is when she realized the importance of working with a dedicated coach and training year-round. What? I mean, yeah, okay. So she went to the second Women's World Games, having basically done all of her own training. She had, so Tomomi Kinoe, she had gone to the Women's World Games basically having done her own training. And she still kind of dominated everything. And now she wants to work with a coach. I mean, I guess four medals in six events wasn't enough. You know, overachiever, I guess. I think it's a good word for it. She's an overachiever. And so in 1927, early 1928, she continued her domination of Japanese athletics and world records. Uh, let's see. Let's, I'm just going to list her records from 1927 through 19, 1928. Um, so these are these are events she set world records. 200 meters, standing long jump, the 100 meter, like something like three times she re- reset her records. Uh, the 400 meter, the long jump. So when it was time to select the team for the 1928 Olympics to be held in Amsterdam, she was an obvious choice. Hitomi Kinoe went to Amsterdam intending to compete in either three or four events. Uh, it's not exactly clear to me, and I'll get into that in a minute, but she planned to compete in the 100 meters, the discus, the high jump, and the 800 meters. In 1928, there were only five events for women, um, and one of them was a relay, the 4 by 100 So Hitomi entered all the events that were, you know, available for women to run in, you know, for individuals. And the thing is, though, I mean, outside the 100 meters, all of her best events were not part of the Olympic Games, right? There was no long jump, no triple jump. Um, So, yeah, it was uh, some of the events that she excelled at were not part of the Olympics. And this kind of just a little side note, um, the very first Olympic gold was also, uh, you know, in male or female, first Olympic gold medal won by a Japanese athlete was won by a man named Oda Mikio in the men's triple jump. So apparently at this time, Japanese are really good at triple jumps. Okay. Um, but Oda Mikio won the triple jump in the 1928 Olympics. The same day, the very same day, Hitomi had her greatest Olympic success. Now, in the end, she chose not to compete in the high jump or the discus. Not sure why, but she had entered them. She decided not to start, didn't do them. And she didn't have a great 100-meter race. So she did very well. She did fine in the, in the preliminary and made it to the semifinals, but she finished fourth in her semifinal heat and didn't go on to the finals. And that left her with the 800. In the preliminary heats, um, Hitomi finished second to a woman from Germany named Lina Radke. And so Hitomi qualified for the finals in the event, which was scheduled for the next day, August 2nd. Keep a note of that date, August 2nd. And in the final, 
Hiromi Kinoe, who had never run the 800 meters in a competition before. Remember, she was a sprint specialist, right? She was doing 100s, 200s, 50, 60 meter, short distances. She'd never run an 800 in competition before. She got second place. Again, this was, again, same person who beat her in her uh, semifinal, Lena Radke. Radke won the race in world record time. And less than a second behind Hitomi Kinoe became the first Japanese woman to win an Olympic medal. The first woman from Asia, in fact. Now, according to one single source, which I was unable to verify any other source, but this, I'm going to include this because it kind of makes an interesting story, and I'll tell you why I think it's not true. So, according to this one source, she wasn't even really planning to run the 800 meters. But, according to this source, the Olympics at that time allowed athletes to join a race at the last second. Which, I mean, that makes for a good story, right? She just jumps into the race. She said, oh, okay, let me sign up for this race, too. My guess as to what really happened was that if an athlete was good enough to run in, to run in one event, they could enter anything else without qualifying, however that looked in 1928. Because, like I say, she told me she had not run the 800, before, 800 meters competitively before. So I think that's what the real story is. Like, she was good enough to, you know, run in the 100 meter. She was good enough to do the other events. But she hadn't run the 800, but still she just decided, okay, sure, there's only a few events for women. I'll try the 800 as well. And so I think I think that's what the real story is. But like I say, it certainly sounds better. It makes it sound like a movie to say, oh, yeah, she had just decided on the last second, I'll try the 800. Like I say, it makes a good story, sounds like a movie, and that's kind of why I think it's probably not true. It sounds too much like a movie, but, I mean, still, regardless of how it, it, it happened, the 800 was a race that was not Hitomi's specialty at all, like in any way at all. She was, like I say, she was the 50, the 60, the 100, the 200 were kind of her specialties. And one more sidebar about the race, the women's 800 meter. So according to, to some contemporaneous reports, and these are reports that were incorrect, by the by, many of the women after the race were just absolutely spent, just falling down, completely worn out. And this prompted the IOC to remove the 800 from women's athletics until like 1960, I think it was, you know. It was just too much for the delicate flowers of the femininity to endure some other sexist patriarchal BS. I mean, it's obviously, you know, the, the, the story that they were winded after running a race in world record time. So let, let me just quote here a short paper from Lynn Emery from Cal State Polytechnic University. Quote, a thorough examination of the evidence, including eyewitness accounts, showed that there were nine women in the 800-meter final. All nine completed the race, and several bettered the existing world's record. Right? So it wasn't just the winner who was ran, like, like Lena Radke, she set the new world record, but like the top three or four runners all ran faster than the previous woman's 800-meter record. 
So, yeah, and continue quoting. Contrary to popular opinion, the runners did not fall on the track, but several moved to the infield to lie down since they were not only winded, but also disappointed at not winning. They looked like any runner after an 800-meter race, one of the hardest races physically from what everything I've ever heard from people who are really good at running because it's not a sprint, but it's not a distance race. It's in the middle. It's really, really hard. So anyway, back to the quotation. The removal of the race from the Olympic Games by the IAAF, which is the uh, athletics track and field just uh, governing body, the removal from the Olympics by the IAAF was unjustified based on the evidence presented. Because of this race, Adding women's track events to the Olympic program has been a slow, difficult process. So, man, men suck. You know, I'd bet if, I would bet a fair amount that not a single member of the IOC was able to run 800 meters in 2 minutes and 16 seconds, which was the winning time of the women's race, but I digress. Anyway, after Amsterdam... Tomi continued to be absolutely dominant, right? A Jill of all trades on the track and field. But on the track and field, on the track, in the field, whatever. So more world records would come in 1929. So triathlon, which is not the modern day triathlon. Um, the 1920s triathlon was the 100 meter uh, high jump and javelin. So kind of like, you know, the pentathlon, but not pentathlon, that's the uh, heptathlon. There was the decathlon and men heptathlon for women. So I guess they have the triathlon. So fewer sports, fewer uh, disciplines, but 100 meter high jump javelin. Apparently, uh, 217 points was good. I don't know what that means because I have no idea how they scored it. But Hitomi Kinue was really good at it. 217 points, a world record. In 1929. Uh, she also set world records for the 200 meter, uh, the 100 and the 60 meter races as well. And in 1930, she went to the Women's World Games again, this time in Prague, and this time with five other athletes. So Prague would uh, lead to another long jump gold medal, a uh, silver medal in the triathlon, and then bronzes in the 60 meter and the javelin. And then she and the others, the other athletes from Japan, went on a tour around Europe. Although Hitomi, she wasn't feeling very well, and she was actually running a fever. So she was doing all this not feeling great. Finally, she went back to Japan, where the public was actually less enthusiastic about her, her accomplishments than they had been in previous years. Probably because she didn't do quite as well I'm using gigantic scare quotes here because, I mean, she still did really well. Four gold, four medals. You know, this time just only only one gold, but still four medals. And in the overall standings, she was only the second best individual. You know, she wasn't the best like she had been the previous time. Because, man, people suck. Not just men, apparently. Everyone sucks. But anyway, she still did really well. But yeah, people weren't quite as enthusiastic about her, her accomplishments this time for whatever reason. And so yeah, she got back after touring Europe for half a year. 
And despite not feeling great, right, she still wasn't fully recovered from, from whatever it was that had been bothering her. She went right back to work. She was out speaking in public, visiting sponsors, traveling around Japan. And like I say, she was still not fully recovered from her trip from Europe. And uh, yeah, she remember she'd had a fever while touring and competing. So this was not a good idea. And in March of 1931, she was admitted to a hospital in Osaka um, under the name of Karui Naoko, apparently. Uh, so they used a pseudonym because she was, after all, something of a celebrity. Even if people weren't, you know, as excited about her as they had been, you know, the previous Women's World Games or maybe the Olympics. But she was still a celebrity. She was still well known as being a really great athlete. And... After being in the hospital for a while, she eventually was diagnosed with pneumonia, and it got really serious. Um, she would stay in hospital for months, right? The people who knew her best would come and visit. Uh, a couple of them, right? Uh, Nikaido Tokyo, the woman who ran the school where, she, where Hitomi had, had graduated from. Um, Oda Mikio, the, the, the guy who won the triple jump gold medal in Amsterdam, they came and visited her in hospital. And they could all tell that Hitomi Kinoe was in a, she was in a fight for her life. Um, and sadly, it was a fight that she would lose. On August 2nd, 1931, three years to the day since she had won silver at the Amsterdam Olympics, Hitomi Kinoe passed away. In the following days, both knew the newspaper where she'd worked in Osaka and then at her family home in Okayama, there were two funeral services held. And there were more than a thousand people attending each one. So two, maybe three thousand people in total went to her funerals. Hitomi Kinoe was only 24 years old when she had died. Right? She won a silver medal in the Olympics. Three golds, two silvers, and three bronze at the Women's World Games. She set something like ten world records in just a few short years you know who knows what she would have done in 1932 you know if she could have if she could have uh, survived if she could have gotten healthy again you know if she had gone to the 30, 1932 games in los angeles she could have tested herself against another one of the greatest all-around athletes ever babe didrickson you know how i said there's a happy coda to the story well Hitomi's medals were all donated to the war effort in the late 30s, early 40s. And, now, wait a minute, I can hear you saying, that's not a happy coda. And I agree, it's not happy. But that's not the coda. I guess it would be more accurate to say that it was thought that all her medals had been donated to the war effort. And, of course, when I say donated, it wasn't exactly, you know, a voluntary donation, right? They were donated to the war effort. Most of them had been donated. One was not. In 2000, right, 70-some years, 72 years after she won it, her silver medal from the Amsterdam Games was found. It had been wrapped up in some bedding, bedclothes that she had used, presumably, I think, probably at the end of her life, maybe. Someone, I mean, I'm guessing her parents hid the medal in the bedding, right? Presumably, even the wartime imperial government 
wasn't going to mess with the memories of a national hero. Okay, that's her family's, you know, that that's her bed. They're, they're keeping that as a memory to her or whatever. Just leave it alone. That's the happy cook. Her silver medal. It's still there. Right? If you go to Okayama, apparently, you can, you can actually find it, see it. I think in public they just have a replica of it, but they actually do have her her 1928 silver medal in Okayama in her hometown. So that is say that is a little happy coat. And that is the story of the first woman from Japan to win a medal in the Olympics. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever it is that you cast your pods. Uh, the podcast is on most major platforms, right? Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, Pandora, um, somewhere else maybe. I don't think it's on iHeartRadio, but I don't know if I really want to get it on. Eh, I could maybe. We'll see. Whatever. If it's not on your favorite platform, let me know. I'll look into it and maybe get it on that platform as well. You can find the Twitter for this podcast at JustAnotherCast. Um... You can learn little bits of Japanese history, which is how I first came across um, Tomi Kinoe's story. I was looking up facts, history facts for this, for my for the Twitter. Um, so yeah, check it out. You can email the show at justanotherjerkpodcast at gmail.com. And you can find all this information on the website, uh, tinyurl.com slash jerkpod. And that's all for me. I'm Jonathan Isaacson, and I'm out. Peace.